Well, we come back this morning to Romans chapter 8 and to a passage that many people have simply entitled Life in the Spirit. You may remember last week we mentioned in this chapter that the Spirit is mentioned so many times, more than any other chapter of the Bible, that um, people have begun to associate it as the chapter of the Holy Spirit. Romans itself has 27 mentions of the Spirit, 14 of them come in this very chapter. And so Paul is placing a great emphasis indeed on the Holy Spirit here, and he basically sets all of this up in the opening verse by declaring that there's no one, or or excuse me, there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but then quickly defines what he's talking about, who those people are. They are the people, the ones who have no fear of condemnation are the people in verse 4 who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As we saw last week, Paul basically defines that in verses 5 and 6. Those people uh, that he's mentioning are those who set their minds not on the things of the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit. That's what he means when he talks about walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. It is It is your mindset. It is where you have, uh, if you will, uh, placed your mind or the way your mind is oriented might be a better way to say it. As he mentions in verses 7 and 8, basically talking about those who are walking according to the flesh, those are the ones who he says are hostile towards God. They're hostile toward his word. They don't really want to submit to it. In fact, he says they're not even able to because of their spiritual blindness, their spiritual deadness. They're unresponsive. But he contrasts that with those whose minds are set on the Spirit, whose minds love God's Word, delight in God's will. Now, when I use those words love and delight, I don't necessarily have some reference to emotion. I think it's important to say because our society is almost completely associated love with some sort of emotional uh, response or some sort of emotional reaction. But when I'm talking about loving God and loving His will and delighting in His will, it might be more helpful to think of it as valuing God or valuing His will. You probably have things that you value. It doesn't necessarily mean you're giddy over them all the time. It doesn't mean that you're you're always waking up each morning with a renewed, uh, fresh, you know, sense of emotion over them. Nor does it always mean that your actions are always perfectly aligned towards those values. But at the end of the day, your choices are continually being reoriented by the things that you value. You, you might value, for example, education. Doesn't mean you're always giddy about your assignments, doesn't mean that you wake up each day just excited about whatever it comes uh, your way through your educational pursuits. Doesn't even always mean that you make the best choices with your schedule when it comes to pursuing that which you value. But at the end of the day, you're always having to reevaluate and reprioritize and reorient your life around your educational goals because you value it. On the same way, this is, is the way it is with a a believer, a person who loves God, who delights in God's will. Your emotions may wax and wane from time to time, but inevitably your choices are continually being reoriented by your loves and by your delights, by the things that you value. Jesus even compared it, remember one time, to loving 
mammon or loving wealth. You can't serve two masters, he said. You'll either hate the one or despise the other. And so whenever you come to God, you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength in the sense that he is the one who is your ultimate pursuit. This is what Paul tells us are those who are walking according to the Spirit. Their values, their minds are oriented towards God and they are the ones who have no fear of condemnation. They have no fear that God will ever despise them or reject them or cast them aside. The one who, as Paul says in one place, walks by the Spirit or in another verse he says lives according to the Spirit or in another verse he simply says are in the Spirit or down in verse 14 even led by the Spirit. All of those terms are just sort of synonymous in this chapter which is important for us to grasp because if you were to simply take a survey of the modern American church and just try to figure out by observation What is the purpose and the role of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life? You would most likely come to a different conclusion than what Paul's talking about in this chapter. You would come up with maybe the idea that a person who is in the Spirit is someone who's wildly out of control, out of their mind even. You might conclude that it's someone who babbles in some sort of uh, gibberish or some sort of foreign tongue. Or you might think that it's someone who's falling over backwards in some sort of trance. Or if you survey the, uh, the broad American church or even the worldwide church, you might associate it with a bunch of emotion or a, a bunch of singing and uh, sort of uh, falling into um, a sort of a... a, a a mindset where you just get lost in all the emotion of a worship experience or shouting or whatever it might be, those might be your conclusions of what a spiritual person, a person led by the Spirit looks like. But all of that stuff would really lead you to a defective view of the Spirit if that's all you have to go by. If you don't follow that model, by the way, you're actually accused of being anti-Holy Spirit these days. If you go to a place that is not doing those things, maybe a place that's dedicated to just teaching the Word of God verse by verse or going to Sunday schools where they just open the Word and explain it each week, you sometimes find those who would accuse you of killing the Spirit. You know, the the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, they would quote sometimes, as if somehow doing that is against the Holy Spirit. But in these verses and in this chapter, what we get from Paul is a true picture of the spiritual person, a true understanding of what the Spirit is supposed to be doing, a real vision for what a spiritual person and a spiritual church looks like. In fact, I would hang that on our banner out front, a Spirit-filled church, except it might give people the wrong impression. But I really believe that the Spirit is alive and active among us as a body of Christ. But not because of all those things that the American evangelicalism would, uh, would uh, sort of uh, mark as the, the indicators of the Spirit, but for very different reasons, for reasons that Paul gives in this chapter. This is the spiritually minded person. This is what they look like. And we learn in this chapter that this is the distinguishing mark of every Christian. In verse 9, Paul says, having talked in the third person about unbelievers, he changes now to the second person talking to believers and saying, but you, 
You are in the Spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And just to clarify who he's talking about, he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So he's talking about anyone who says that they belong to Christ, anyone who makes a claim to being a Christian. If they do not have the Spirit, if they do not have the evidences of the Spirit as listed here, they have no merit to their claim. Their claim is false. If they don't have the Spirit, they don't belong to Christ. So important that we understand that. Although it's a, maybe a bit of a footnote in Paul's argument here, it is often missed by so many believers who are sitting around and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, thinking that the Spirit is something that is subsequent to their initial move of faith towards God when Paul tells us here, as he tells us in other places of Scripture, that to not have the Spirit is to not be Christ. So that we understand the moment you believe, you are immediately filled with the Spirit and the things that Paul talks about here immediately are applicable to your life. He comes in, he takes up residence within you. As Paul tells the Corinthians, your body becomes a sort of temple for the Holy Spirit. All of this happening immediately, the moment you believe, the moment you are forgiven and your sins are wiped away and God pronounces over you a a sort of legal declaration, declaration that you are, according to His standards and His law, you are altogether righteous because of the work of Christ. At that moment, the Holy Spirit enters your life and begins to make you not only legally declared righteous, but to make you practically righteous. In fact, this is really the secret of this whole chapter. It says Paul's talking about a person who walks in the Spirit. We come to find out that the secret of it all is simply having the Spirit. You can imagine, if I were to hold up a glass to you and ask you, you know, how, how do I get the air out of that glass? Well, obviously, you can't do it by you know, sort of dumping it over or pouring it out or anything like that. You might could go through some sort of complicated uh, zero vacuum machine and try to suck it all out. But the easiest way to get the air out is what? Simply to fill it with water. And so what Paul's telling us here is this is what happens. When the Spirit comes in, when He takes up residence in your life, all the sin that was filling your life before is all chased out as you're filled up more and more with the Spirit. The Spirit is, is completely transforming and changing your life so that you go from one who previously was walking according to the flesh to now one who's walking according to the Spirit because the Spirit is now filling you if you're in Christ. This is what the Spirit does. He comes, He causes you to be born again, to become alive inside personally being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life and he begins this work of continually making you more and more holy more and more sanctified and this is what Paul means when verse 5 when he says to, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace I, I really don't know why the ESV and some other translations even translate that as a verb there is no verb in that clause it is a noun phrase literally the mind which is on the spirit it's life and peace. The mind, this is, a, this is a definitive statement. 
It's not anything that you have to uh, necessarily decide to do. This is just a reality of your Christian life immediately. Now, there are enhancements to that, as we'll see. But it is, for every believer, the basic orientation of their life. The mind uh, becomes, by the power of the Spirit, life and peace. It has peace with God. No more animosity toward Him. And it has life from God. Paul says that in verse 5 and 6. And as we said, he kind of digresses in verses 7 and 8 to talk about the mind of the flesh for just a moment. But he comes back here in verse 9 to really expand on what this means to have the, the, the mind that is on the Spirit. He really elaborates it for us in verses 9 through 13. And he wants to help us in these verses that will be our focus for this morning. He, well, he wants to help us understand two key results or two key consequences of this new reality of life for us. This reality of having the Spirit filling us now. Two key consequences of, of having the Spirit. We might even think of two key definitions of the spiritual person. These, these are the markers. This is what you typically would uh, conclude of the life of the person who has the Spirit within them. As I said, it's not the markers that you would maybe get from broader evangelicalism, but, but, but this is the way Paul defines it for us. And the first one is this. The first key consequence of having the Spirit is this. It is in verses 9 through 11, spiritual life. It's spiritual life. Paul tells them that they are in the Spirit in verse 9, but then immediately qualifies this with a series of if statements. Or someone might even translate it since statements, but these are the, if you will, the sort of conditional statements that, uh, that affirm that you are in the Spirit in verse 9. First of all, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, as we have already said, that is the first reality that the Spirit has taken up residence within you, and Paul will really get to that even more down in verses 14 through 17. But he takes that and he expands on it even further with other implications in verse 10. That we could all sum up with this one word, which is life. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. There's some debate about what the spirit is there. Is that the Holy Spirit or is that our personal spirit? I think Uh, Personally, it's our spirit because Paul sets it over against our bodies in contrast. And one of the key definitions to to, uh, terms in Scripture is sometimes looking at just simply what it's contrasted with. And so he's contrasting here our outer body and our internal spirit. And he says that because of righteousness, because of God and his, uh, his work through Christ, our spirits, our internal person now, has been made into life. This is a, its basic characteristic now. He acknowledges that our body is still dead because of sin. Talking there about our physical body. It's not completely dead, but it's as good as dead. It is dying all the time. It is in this process where it still suffers under the pains and the injuries and the wounds and the sorrows of life. We are sick and we are weak and we are tired sometimes because of the passing nature of our still unredeemed flesh. None of that 
is any indicator that the Spirit isn't inside of you. As a matter of fact, we struggle because on the outside, it's not always a reflection at all of what's taking place on the inside. There's a discontinuity between what we are knowing, what we're experiencing, what we're seeing on the inside, and what other people might see on the outside. On the inside, we are alive. We've never been more alive because of the work of the Spirit. Something happened to us, and we moved from a place of spiritual deadness where we were plagued with guilt and shame and animosity and all those things. We moved from that kind of dour place of deadness into a place of spiritual life, a new reality within us, and now our spirit is alive. The good news, though, is that this life Although it may not be apparent on the outside, on the outside we have the same sort of bodies that are wearing down and worn down by everyone else, but Paul is clear that ultimately, in one day, this will also be a reality on the outside. As he says here in verse 11, that this this outer man will also, he says, be brought to life, or as he says it here, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So here he has this threefold, if you will, condition. The spirit is in you. And if the spirit's in you, you have life. And if you have this life within you, you're going to have this life on the outside one day. So we have, we've already experienced, if you will, sort of resurrection on the inside, just like everyone else born in this world. We were born dead, but now we've been brought to life. Uh, You could have brought us to church before. You could have preached at us. You could have read the Bible to us. We were just completely dead to it all. We were uninterested in it all. But one day we were brought to life and completely transformed. And Paul says in the same way, this outer man is also going to be transformed. This outer man is also going to be brought to life on the day of our resurrection, the day when Christ returns, or on the day when He raises the dead. This is, by the way, what Paul says down in verse 32, we're groaning for. We're groaning for this day. Our outer man still suffering under this, but he says in verse 23, I should say, uh, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit... We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we have this sort of first fruits, or or the idea is sort of a down payment. We have this down payment that has been brought inside of us, this life that's been brought into us. It's an indicator that there's something more that's in store for us. All the desires that we have churning inside of us to do great things for God will finally be fulfilled one day whenever we receive our outer bodies. That's why for a Christian, the day of our death is not an unwelcome day. The day of our death is a day when we eagerly wait because we have been yearning and longing and waiting for the shedding or the setting aside, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 5, this outer tent so that we can be clothed upon with our ultimate tent one day. We have the first fruits, the down payment by the reality of this life that's already taken place in us. You can imagine if you had someone come up and tell you they wanted to 
buy your car and they were going to give you a terrific price for it. You might be somewhat skeptical unless they handed you a check for $25,000, said, I'll be back next week. They gave you a big down payment. You'd have a lot of confidence that they're probably going to come back for their car or their check, one or the other, right? Well, God has given you a big down payment, a significant indicator, a first fruits in the work that He's already done in your heart. It is the reality, invisible though it is right now, of the visible work that He's going to do through the resurrection of your bodies. And it brings us joy. It absolutely delights our heart every day as we now look with anticipation on that day of His return, waiting for this redemption of our bodies. We're living now, battling, if you will, with uh, the ongoing realities of this fallen body. We're battling for uh, always dominion over it, if you will. Paul says he's beating his body, bringing it into submission to Christ. But all of this reality of life within us is yearning for the final redemption of our bodies. But in the meantime, while we're waiting, this life has changed us. This life has made us completely new creatures, even in this body. So that sin no longer dominates us, as Romans chapter 6 says, we're no longer enslaved to us. Or in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, you've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And why? In order that you may bear fruit for God. So all this work that's already taken place has taken place in order that we might be bearing fruit for God. This down payment of the Spirit, in other words, is already paying dividends. It's already paying dividends. And so this is the first consequence of the Spirit coming to live within us. It's this life. But then I want you to look at the second one that Paul gives in verses 12 through 13. Because it's debt. And that's not a misprint. I didn't say death. It's debt. You owe something. This is the conclusion that Paul draws from all this reality of the life and the spirit that's been brought to us. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We're debtors. We owe something. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. See, Paul understands the realities of this new situation. And he understands that we have this internal yearning to live for God. And he understands that we're in this battle for the flesh. And he understands that it's not an easy battle. And he understands what he tells the Galatian believers in Galatians 5.17. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul understands that you are in a battle. And like any soldier, if you're going to have any uh, hope of being successful in this battle... You need strong, strong motivation. Any motivated soldier, any soldier who has a a purpose or a cause to fight for is inevitably going to outplay, if you will, the soldier who's simply conscripted or forced into service. And so Paul wants to sort of rivet your attention. He wants to 
really bolster you in this fight with some motivations. And the first one is this, is you need to understand that you are a debtor. You owe something for everything that you've received. This new life within you, this mind that has been given to you, this this new hope that has been born in your heart because of the Spirit, all this stuff, all this reality now demands, it places obligations on you. We can't ignore, in other words, how much we've been given. We can't forget either how the flesh has given us nothing. We owe nothing to the flesh. All it did was deceive us and kill us, as Paul outlined back in Romans chapter 7, even through the commandment of God, sin deceived us and brought us to death. It killed us. Through good deeds, through evil deeds, through religious deeds, through unreligious deeds, whatever it was, the flesh was serving you no good. It it brought you nothing of value. It's momentary Pleasures were only the doorways into long-term grief and consequences. But on the other hand, God is not only your maker, but He's redeemed you. Even when you were rebellious, even as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, even when you're an enemy of God, He reached out and He reconciled Himself to you. He demonstrated His love. In that while you were still sinners, He died for you. And apart from Him, you would still be hopelessly and blindly headed down this pathway of death. And so you owe God everything. Everything. You are a debtor to Him and you cannot escape that reality. You can't sit back and imagine that somehow you deserved all this. You can't sit back and imagine that this was some great investment on his part, that you have brought him some tremendous value that he wouldn't have had otherwise. You can't imagine any of those things. You are a debtor. Paul knows we need that. We need to be reminded of that. Otherwise, we, are, we would grow weak need in our battle with sin. We would grow complacent in our battle with sin. We might be confused and begin thinking that somehow we owe something to the flesh, that somehow it is the thing that pays us, but it hasn't. It doesn't. It leads to death. In fact, Paul doesn't even complete his thought here. It's as if he's overwhelmed with the thought he can't even... All he can do is really state the negative. You are a debtor, not to the flesh. And he sort of leaves the positive side unstated, but just simply understood. We've been bought with a price, therefore we ought to glorify God in our bodies. As Paul says to the Corinthians, the love of Christ constrains us. Because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. That's our conclusion based on His love. Because He gave everything for us, we owe everything to Him. We owe everything. You're a debtor, like a scuba diver, who's indebted, if you will, to his oxygen tank. It would be ludicrous for the diver to think that he could discard his gear and just simply breathe in the ocean around him. He understands what? That's death. That's death. 
It doesn't give you anything. The momentary feeling of being free from your tank, but absolute demise afterward. You have to clearly understand where your life comes from. You have to clearly understand that you are indebted to it. All that leads to the second motivation that Paul wants you to have in this battle with sin. And that ultimately is this outcome. This is a battle of life and death. Or as he says in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Paul's giving a little more explanation of this debt or this obligation we have to the Spirit. The essence of this is that we have no other source of life. This is the only way to life. It's not like you have multiple choices out there. You can choose life by the Spirit or you can choose life by the world. You can choose life by your, uh, you know, pursuing some relationship or you can choose life by your career or life by your possessions. You just can choose all of them. That's not true. You only have two options. You have life that comes by the Spirit or you have death that comes by the flesh. There's no other way. And he tells us that therefore we need to be putting to death those deeds of the flesh that lead to death. Or as John Stott says, there's a kind of life that leads to death and there's a kind of death that leads to life. There's a, there's a perception of what life is based on your own lust and your own desires and your own pride. And you feed your pride and your ego and let it just, just grow and grow and grow. But ultimately it's death. Or there's a kind of death. A kind of death that leads to life. If you live one way, it leads to death. If you die one way, it leads to life. And all this by the power of the Spirit. Now what we're talking about here is the um, often forgotten, maybe rejected doctrine of mortification. You don't hear that term very often. People don't like to talk about it. It doesn't sell very well in Christian consumerism of the modern church. No one wants to hear a message of having to put things to death and kill things. But what Paul's telling you is simply this. There is no other pathway of real Christian living. He's really restating the words of Christ. If you would save your life, you have to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. You'll find it. You'll take up your cross. Paul's very clearly telling us this is the only way to experience the life that the Spirit has placed within you. And when he, when he talks about this putting to death, this mortification of death, he's not talking about some sort of self-flagellation or, or, or masochist act of penance where you just sort of go out there and abuse yourself in order to soothe your conscience and all of your guilt uh, and all the pain that comes from the things you did wrong. That's not what he's talking about sort of inflicting suffering on yourself to try to atone for your sins. And he's not talking about he's not talking about monasticism. 
He's not saying that you go off somewhere and separate yourself or isolate yourself from the rest of the world. That's not mortification. In fact, that's terrible because honestly, when you lock yourself up like that, you lock yourself up with your sins. They go with you. None of that is mortification. None of that is putting to death the deeds of the flesh. The key to putting to death the deeds of the body or the flesh begins by setting your mind on the things of the flesh. As Paul had already mentioned back in verse 5, to live by the Spirit is to have the mind set on the things of the Spirit. Or more to the point, when Paul gets to his sort of exhortation phase in chapter 12, verse 1 of Romans, this is what he says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So that by testing, you may prove, you may, excuse me, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the transformation that needs to be constantly taking place in our lives. Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, which you understand, that's a little bit of an oxymoron, right? Because a sacrifice is something you kill on the altar. And so he's not talking about literal death here, but in your life, in the ways that you go about your life, and all the ins and outs of your daily activities, you are presenting yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And He wants us to present our bodies living and breathing in all the daily routines and be constantly renewing our minds by the Spirit, by His Word, so that we can come to think His will. It all begins with this renewal of our mind, this understanding of the will of God is, what is good and what is acceptable to Him. You hear this, by the way, in Galatians chapter 5 when Paul's talking about this same sort of conflict of flesh and spirit. He makes a contrast in Galatians 5 between the works or the deeds of the flesh and not the deeds of the Spirit, but what? The fruit of the Spirit. Which if you really were to summarize in some other way, you might say would be the attitudes. So it begins with these attitudes, love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. These are the sort of attitudes, these become the new values in your life system. These are the things that, you're, that you are pursuing and they're, they're what cause you to, as Paul says back in Romans chapter 6, to present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness now. And it just naturally flows out of this renewed thinking that you have. I remember when I was in college, those of you who know me know that I'm not a big fan of of Mexican food, particularly salsa, because I had some bad salsa when I was in college, and it was a bad night. Let's just say it that way. (laughs) Food poisoning from some bad salsa. And you know, it's been the most interesting thing, because I used to really like Mexican food, but now, ever since that event... I have never been a fan of salsa because my mind now associates that with bad things. That's what we want taking place in our spiritual life. 
We want to be renewing our minds. And although we might have previously thought that that particular activity and that deed of the flesh was a good thing, now we understand it's going to lead to a bad night, a bad consequence, a bad outcome. And so we develop, if you will, this sort of slowly developing this spiritual aversion to sinful things. This renewing of our mind, we put on the joy and the love and the gentleness and the patience and the self-control of the Spirit and immediately whenever we don't see those things taking place in our life, there's, there's, there's a rise within our hearts, an anxiety, a sense of guilt and shame for things that previously we would have consumed with no problem. Now we can't abide by being out of fellowship with a brother or sister because of unforgiveness. Now we can't abide with a harsh word towards our spouse. Now we can't abide pursuing someone for selfish gratification, whether sexually or monetarily or whatever it might be. Now we can't abide by all those self-centered and uh, arrogant and prideful, harsh and unloving and unkind ways. We've renewed our mind and we are slowly in our spirit developing this aversion to these sinful things. And so as you are setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, you're walking by the Spirit. The Spirit is just sort of the natural overflow of your life now. And this is the battle that you're in. You're, you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh by feeding the life of the Spirit within you. Walking by the Spirit, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. And all of this to glorify God. Through His life within us, He's the empowering one. And this is what we always have to remember. You can't do this on your own. God never intended you to. You have to do it through the Spirit. He's the source of life within you and He's the one who brings about this renewal within you. Living by the Spirit begins by setting or filling your mind with His truth. Meditating on His Word. Reading the life of our Savior. Reading the instructions of the apostles. Reading the story of Israel. Reading those spiritual lessons over and over again. This is His truth. This is the truth of the Spirit. Which, by the way, Peter says when men wrote these Scriptures, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you want to fill your mind, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, read His Word. He's the agent of it. The Spirit then is the instrument that God gives to us. We just have to lift it. We just have to lift it as the tool that God's given us for this purpose of sanctification. Of course, you need the Spirit to begin with. For some of you here, there is no Spirit because you've never come to Christ. There's no spiritual life inside of you. All this stuff, all this preaching and singing and things that Christians do are just as dead to you as it ever was. You don't understand anything about some secret internal life because you've never experienced it. Well, listen, our warning to you is the same that Scripture gives you. That if you don't have the Spirit of life, you don't belong to Him. And if you don't have the Spirit of life, you're on the pathway of death. You're headed down the pathway of death. 
and all that internal angst that you feel, all the guilt and all the shame over your sin that you feel, that's death. You are already experiencing it. The sad reality is that all that that's on the inside, it'll one day be manifest on the outside in judgment. When your whole world comes to an end and you face for eternity the same kind of anguish on the outside that you're already feeling on the inside. Our challenge to you today is don't leave here without the Spirit. Don't leave here without the life. We're going to close in a word of prayer in a moment. We're going to sing a song. We'll be going on our separate ways. But if God is speaking to you, if God is at work in your life, please find someone. Find me. Find one of our elders, Sunday school teachers. Let us have an opportunity to talk to you about how you can have this gift of life. I'll stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're so grateful for the gift and the reminder this morning that we are indeed debtors to you. How foolish we are to ever think that we could breathe in the fleshly pleasures of this life and it would give us anything. It only gives us death. But Lord, we want to take in the Spirit today in full measure. May He fill every ounce of us. May He flush out every every corner of our life that might still be a haven for sin. Help us to fill our lives with His Word, with His truth. Help us to fill our hearts with these attitudes, these fruits of the Spirit. Help us to put away the deeds of the flesh. And Lord, as You transform us and we experience more and more of Your blessings, the only thing we'll have to give in return for all that you've given to us is simply to stand before you and say that we owe you even more. So Lord, may we live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh to bear fruit for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.